Hello, my name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. I hope you enjoy listening to today's discussion. This is Jonathan Kay, Canadian Editor for Quillette.com. Last month, Quillette podcast listeners heard me interview Megan Murphy the Vancouver-based feminist who was banned from Twitter after tweeting criticism of transgender rights activists whom she regards as abusive in their tactics. Twitter's actions drew outrage from many sources, including, ironically, some members of the trans community itself. This includes Karina Cohn, an Indianapolis-based software developer who tweets at Karina underscore Cohn. That's C-O-R-I-N-N-A underscore C-O-H-N. Following Twitter's decision to ban Murphy, Ms. Cohn wrote a widely circulated Twitter thread in which she zeroed in on Twitter's decision to punish so-called deadnaming, which is the practice of identifying transgender individuals by their pre-transition names. In her thread, Ms. Cohn wrote, quote, There is not a unified position in the trans community on deadnaming. For Twitter to add it to its prohibited speech restrictions means that Twitter has taken a specific ideological stance and is choosing to ban a wide swath of speech, end quote. In early December, Ms. Cohn spoke to me over the phone from her home in Indianapolis about this issue and about her larger observations on changes in the trans community since the early 1990s. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Corinna, what inspired you to write that widely circulated and very thoughtful thread? What inspired me to write that thread was Twitter's decision to ban Megan Murphy for having referred to trans women as he or by male pronouns. I thought it was really unjust for her to be removed from Twitter, especially given the context of how she was referring to somebody's sex and birth name. Could you give us a little bit of background about how you know the subject? Sure. When I was a teenager, I started my transition from male to female. I went full-time when I was 18 years old and started hormone replacement therapy. And I've lived my entire adult life as a woman, although I'm biologically male. But that gives me a trans perspective. Uh, It's been about 25 years. So I've seen a lot of changes in the community including the changes that started happening about six or seven years ago. You yourself presumably have been deadnamed. How does that make you feel? I can tell you that my mom still calls me by the name that she and my father named me when I was born. I have come to understand that the reason that she does that is that she loves me very much. She raised me from the time that I was a helpless baby to the time that I left the house. And she has a conception of me that includes that part of my history. That's just how she sees me. Have you encountered people who are deadnaming you intentionally in, in perhaps a more malicious spirit, or they're making a political statement by doing so? And, and if so, how does that make you feel in those contexts? Well, I have not, but I recognize that my case is perhaps a little bit different from most trans people because I transitioned so young. Most of the people in my life only know me as Corinna, but I could see how Somebody who transitioned a little bit later in life might have 
children or spouses or other family members who've gotten to know them over a, a long time who still have that perception of them and the, the memories of them and the connections that they made with that person using the name that they first knew them as. Is it perhaps unrealistic to expect that when a person does transition later in life, that there will be universal and, and instant usage of the new name? I'd, I'd like to take a moment to say that I don't believe that the term dead naming is a, is a good use for what you're describing. Um, I take issue with the term. What's the term you prefer and why? I think that it's okay to refer to somebody, their birth name or their Christian name as their former name or their previous name. I disagree with the term dead naming because the word dead implies that somehow the process of transition is that of being born again or of creating a really drastic severance from their past in a way that the past is described as being dead. That's where dead naming comes from. Their previous self or a, a trans person's previous self is conceived as they're a former person, someone that they're not anymore. But of course, we are the accumulation of our history. We don't die when we transition. We keep living. Can you see why some people really do want to put a bright line between a life they led before transition and a, and a life they led after? I can see that with perfect clarity because I used to be of that mentality. And the harmful thing about that mentality is that you're trying to escape from the things that you did when you were known or perceived as your birth sex. But that's really important history. And I can tell you an anecdote from when I was in school. I was in a project where I was helping some classmates prepare for a debate. And I was taking up a role that, that had been defined as part of the terms of the debate where that character had a gender neutral name, but it came to light that while my teammates or classmates were practicing, they had been practicing as though that person was male. And so while we started off, they were referring to me with female pronouns, but as they became passionate or really interested in the points that they were trying to make, they reverted back to referring to me as male. And at that time, it was really, really painful. I went to my car and I cried for about 20 minutes because of how painful it was. And in retrospect, I have to laugh at myself because what they were doing wasn't personal. It wasn't directed at me. But I had such a little esteem about being trans and about being perceived correctly that what they had done, I took as, as being a very hurtful and personal action. Of course, it wasn't at all. They weren't thinking about that. They were thinking at that moment about how to make their points best. So what does that have to do with today um, or how I think differently about it today? I used to be that person, and the more that I own it, the more that I realize that my life is just this one continuum, 
the easier it is to conceive of or accept the fact. I used to be somebody's son. I used to, well, I used to be my parents' son. I used to be my sister's brother. And there's history there. That's just part of where I came from. And acknowledging that and owning it has made every other instance of people perceiving me as male or, quote, misgendering me, unquote, just part of who I am. I'm trans. If some people see me as male, they're not wrong. That's who I am. Is it possible for you to have a normal social uh, or family relationship with somebody who just, as they see it, as a matter of principle, refuses to refer to you as a woman? Can you get past that and have a normal relationship with a person like that? I have family members who attempt to be kind by saying, I know you're trans, but et cetera, et cetera. And to me, that's a sign that they're recognizing that that's not how I see myself or that I don't see myself as, as a man and that they're trying to tell me that they're working on acknowledging it at least, even if they don't accept it. And I've come to understand that that's part of their process and that's part of their way of telling me by acknowledging it that they know that it's an important part of who I am. Remember that I transitioned as a teenager and because I went through my entire adult history and my maturation as being a trans individual, it's difficult for me to separate the process of growing up to be an adult from the process of becoming wise as a trans person. They're so intertwined that it's difficult for me to pick those apart. I feel like because I'm older now, and not just because I've been trans for so long, that I've achieved a certain level of self-acceptance that was especially hard to gain when I was in my early 20s or even mid-20s. And what does self-acceptance look like for somebody who has transitioned? In my opinion, self-acceptance is realizing that if you transition, although you gain some of the qualities of the sex that you're trying to transition to, such as, in my case, breasts, or uh, a more feminine appearance, it is at the surface. My biological sex is male, and although I can change my body by taking hormones or via surgical procedures, the fact that I was born male and that I was raised male are just part of my history, and that's not anything that I can change. Accepting that and not feeling angst about it or helplessness about it, but feeling a sense of wholeness about it and ownership makes me feel so much more confident and self-assured and less depressed than I used to be prior to having that epiphany. Can you describe that depression, what that depression felt like? Sure. There were times that I would spend an entire day by myself, curled up on my bed, crying because I felt like an alien living among humans. I felt so disassociated from the other people around me because I could see 
as I was growing up, people having normal heterosexual relationships, my, my friends, or normal homosexual relationships. And I was always an exception because I was not openly trans to my friends and trying to create relationships with people when you're trying to hide an essential part of who you are is very alienating. And as I said, I, I spent weekends curled up in bed crying because I just felt this sense of loneliness and desperation because part of me was trying to be something that I couldn't achieve. And the part of me that realized the truth just felt despondent about it. There's this clinical term, which of course you know, uh, gender dysphoria. How much of what you were feeling is captured in that clinical term? Honestly, I don't think any of it is. I think gender dysphoria is more about feeling that the body that you're inhabiting doesn't correspond to what you think it ought to be. So I don't think that gender dysphoria encompasses any of that depression. I, I think that they're related because that sense of not being 100% who you want to be or who you're supposed to be is there. But I continue to have feelings of gender dysphoria, but I don't feel depressed any longer. I don't know if that makes sense. It's difficult to describe the feeling to someone who, who doesn't sense it. It sounds like part of your coming to terms with who you are means coming to terms with the fact that you were born into a male body and that you had male experiences. And that's, that's part of, of who you are, which distinguishes you from somebody who has experienced being uh, female their entire life. Is that seen as, as controversial to the extent that you're, you're not fully embracing the idea of being 100% female in your identity? Right now, it is controversial. At the time that I transitioned in the early 90s, that was just accepted as part of the decision to transition. So it's controversial recently, recently in the, in the last six or seven years, because there's been this meme that has risen to the forefront of activism, which is trans women are women. And that's been accelerated to trans women are female. If you try to dig into the meaning of either of those phrases, you have to either follow one of two paths. You have to obliterate the meaning of sex or confuse the meaning of sex so badly that it doesn't have any application to any human or else you have to go a spiritual route and say that you have a female soul or a female brain, even though there's not any evidence to support having either of those things. Earlier, you mentioned that this is something, a big change that you observed five or six years ago. How did this change manifest itself? When did you first notice it? I first noticed it around 2011. I was a member of a trans support group, and I started receiving a lot of peer pressure to believe or agree with a set of broader political principles that I had my own personal objections to. And when I would say, I, I don't really believe that thing, or I think that we should question it more, I started receiving a lot of pushback 
saying that the groups that were allying with the trans movement thought that these politics were important and that I wasn't properly doing my part as an ally to our allies by arguing against it. I'm going to give you an example, and I hope you give me a chance to talk this out. Various immigration groups or some union groups started to pick up the trans cause around 2010, 2011 by making statements saying that they had gender identity protections or saying that they were in solidarity with the trans movement. And within my own support group, I was asked to reciprocate, basically or pressured to reciprocate. And although I personally support a broader, more and more free immigration platform, it's a moderate position. It's, it's not all the way to the left. And although there are some cases where I support unions, I think it's case by case by industry. So I don't, I want to support unions, but I think help their, their workers and not just for the sake of supporting unions and pushing back saying, I want to continue to have a nuanced view on these issues and not just support other groups because they're supporting trans people. I started getting some pushback in in this group. So to a certain extent, it was a dynamic of, look, this group is going all in on our cause, so we're going to go all in on their cause. Yes. Yes. When the battle for many gay rights were won, including the right to marry, which in Canada, where I live, uh, was more than a decade ago, that there was a dynamic that some of the people who fought that cause were looking around for another good cause into which to put their efforts. And that that's one of the reasons that the trans movement became strongly energized five or six years ago. Would you say there's truth to that? I happen to know from somebody who does fundraising for one of the more prominent LGBT rights movements in the United States that that is an accurate statement. I know transgender people for whom being transgender is a negligible part of their life, professionally and socially. It's just it's part of who they are, but it's, it doesn't define who they are. And I know of transgender people for whom it's, it's almost sort of a full-time activist identity. Uh, may I ask where you fit in on that, ident- on, on that scale? In my day-to-day life, I write software. And I've written a book recently, or contributed to a book, I should say, on software development. For me, that is one of the most important things in my life, my career. Separately from that, when I'm on social media, because I have standing as a trans person, I want to provide some support to my friends who are feminists, uh, especially my friends who are radical feminists and lend support to the things that they believe in that I also happen to agree with. So I don't see myself as an activist, but I recognize that A, by being trans, and B, by having some views that are considered heterodox, that I can help support my feminist friends. Is there pressure on members of the transgender community, as within any community, to toe a certain party line? Absolutely. In fact, I've lost a couple of friends based on my frank and honest conversations about accepting myself being male 
and urging them to try to hasten them along the journey of self-acceptance because the idea of accepting being male and also being trans is presently anathema because we're supposed to conceive of ourselves as actually being the sex that we aspire to become. It's very common in the trans community to isolate people who express these challenging ideas and ignore them or silence them. In in my case, I was added to Twitter bots that blocked users at a mass scale. I've had individuals in my life who have chosen to exclude me from their lives any longer. And it's, it's very difficult to be honest about my opinions with other trans people because I think they're considered really shocking, even though at one point I think that they would have just been considered ordinary in the trans community. And, and just to be clear, the view that some see as shocking is when you take stock of who you are in the context of experiences you had before you transitioned and after in a holistic way, that that is what's seen as, as politically shocking in the current environment to some, to some members of the transgender community. Definitely, yes. And, and how much does this break down along generational lines? That's a really interesting question because trans people transition at a wide variety of ages, all the way from, I guess now, earlier than 10 years old, all the way up into their 70s. So I don't think it's a generational issue at all. I think the generation that you belong to if you're trans is the generation at which, like the year that you transitioned or the the age that you transitioned. So at the time that I transitioned, the word transgender wasn't even in common use. I hadn't heard it until two or three years after I had transitioned. And as far as I can tell, it didn't get popularized until around 96 or 97. Was it, was it transsexual that was then more commonly used? Yes. And actually, that's the word that I used to describe myself. Could you tell me, in the world of 2018, what is the political ramification of, of using a word like transsexual instead of transgender? Does it have a sort of coded meaning from the point of view of, of gender politics? It does. The word transsexual has been used in a lot of different contexts, including pornography. And I think that for people who transitioned in the last five or six years, or maybe as early as 2010, they associate the word transsexual with pornography. And I've been told by a number of trans people that I need to stop using that label for myself because it helps perpetuate a a sexist stereotype of trans women. I want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of ostracism, because it sounds especially cruel to me that people for whom alienation and loneliness and exclusion may well have been part of who they are when they were growing up, that they are then perhaps excluded and ostracized a second time by people who who should empathize with them along what sound like ideological grounds. That must seem like a very grim irony to people who who dissent from the party line within this community. Yes, that's a, a very keen observation. There's a real problem of lack of self-esteem in people who transition. And I don't think it's because people are trans. I think it's because there's a culture 
of trying to see oneself as, as being a victim of society when one transitions. Because I don't see myself in that light anymore because I've been able to figure out how to put all of the pieces of my history together into a, a complete picture. I don't feel like I have the self-esteem issues as much anymore. So being ostracized from people who are upset that you see yourself differently doesn't hurt as much as you might think it, it should. However, having crossed that line or crossed that boundary, I'm so desperate to bring all of these people with me and say, hey, like, be your whole self. Accept who you were. Like, integrate that into your life and join me on this side. It's, it's fantastic to not have those crippling esteem issues anymore because you're afraid of how people will see you if they think that you used to be a man. Like they already see it. If you accept it and you learn to be okay with it, it feels so freeing. I wish I could just bring everybody with me here. Is this a phenomenon that, that like a lot of other phenomena, it's, it's simply cyclical and that 20 years from now, when transgender, transsexual identity is, is more widely accepted, and there's less concern about prejudice because there's less prejudice that people will just feel more natural about the more nuanced position that, that you take on this sort of thing? Is it, is it simply a question of waiting out the cycle? I really hope so. I don't know if it's cyclical or not, but what I know is that the idea that trans women are female is so easily rebutted by reality that that's not, not an idea that can go on indefinitely. At some point, even the people who believe it now will have to grapple with it and understand that it's not true. I don't know how they're going to deal with it when that time comes, but it's inevitable. Not only that, but there's a generation of young people that are being vectored into transition before they've even gone through puberty. And in my opinion, as those individuals reach their 20s and 30s and start to mature and achieve adulthood, they're going to ask themselves and the whole community, what happened? Like, why are we who we are? Why did this happen? And they're going to reach the same conclusion that being trans does not change your sex. So just to give you a little bit of my own history, when I was 16 years old, I was using the internet, and back then there wasn't even a World Wide Web yet, but there was a global chat network called IRC, Internet Relay Chat. So back then, there was still a trans culture on the internet. It was nascent, but it was in the IRC channels. And in fact, at the time, the hangout for all trans people, regardless of their, whether they're transsexual or transvestites, was a channel called cross-dress. All transgender people were lumped into one IRC channel? Uh, you got to remember, this was like 91, 92. There weren't transgender people. <laughs> there were transsexuals and, and transvestites. So yeah, we were all lumped into one channel. There weren't enough transsexuals to really sustain a channel just for transsexual. And what was on that channel? You know, I was a teenager and there were adults telling me 
that I was so lucky to be a child or not to be a child, but to be a teenager starting transition and that I was going to be so beautiful. It was this constant wellspring of validation and it was the only source of real validation in my life. So it wasn't, it wasn't the fact that Donahue was interviewing trans people and putting them on daytime television. It wasn't the broader culture that was putting this pressure on me. It was the networking that I was doing with other people who were gender variant. And I, I think it's just as much like that today. That version of you that was on IRC, even as you said, even before the World Wide Web in, in 1991, what would that version of you have thought if somebody had showed them 2018 and showed them YouTube and Tumblr and network television? Would oh, you my be- God. Would you have believed it? That, that would have been like morphine to me as a teenager. I felt ostracized from my male peers. I didn't have any male adults in my life who I wanted to model myself after. Seeing that there was a whole world of gender-variant people, I, I would have connected with it instantly. I would have become obsessed with it. Tell me a little bit more about this this IRC channel. What was it like to log on? Did your parents know that you were on that channel, or, or were you at school when you did this? The community, believe it or not, was very self-policing. If people would come on the channel and start being overtly sexual, they were kicked out of the channel, and they were guided to go create their own communities where overt sexual content would be allowed, but it was not allowed into that channel. So it was weirdly wholesome. As far as whether or not my parents knew what was going on, they absolutely did not. That's not something that I would have ever admitted to a parent. How have these issues affected the social dynamic within the trans community as you've experienced it? I don't hang out with any other trans people. I have a couple of close trans friends, but there are so few of us around. And in Indianapolis, I have one trans friend who, or a former friend who never wants to see me again. And I have another who I have a casual relationship. And in the city that I live in, those are the only two trans people who I have any correspondence with or have had a habit of correspondence with. So if, if I want to hang out with other trans people or if I want to talk about issues that could only really be appreciated by somebody who's transitioned, I have to go online. I don't have an alternative. I think it's a matter of numbers. If there are one out of a thousand of us who actually transition and not just merely identify as being trans or I guess the new thing is non-binary, but to actually encounter another person who has undergone the action of transition and then to also strike up a friendship or or some other relationship with them, it's not very common. But the number given is 0.7%. Is that number meaningful to you? No, it's not that many. (laughs) It's not that many. (laughs) That, That number is so laughably inflated. That's probably everybody who says they identify as trans. This is one of the most difficult things about even trying to to come up with a number. The idea of what is transgender just is in constant fluctuation. When the term came to prominence, you may have seen a graphic like this before that's called the transgender umbrella. And beneath the transgender umbrella, it has things like F2M and M2S, which used to be acceptable labels for people who are transitioning from male to female or vice versa. Also under the umbrella would be cross-dressers, transvestites, 
drag queens. But if you listen to the dialogue today, 2018, drag queens, cross-dressers, transvestites have been told they are cis people and are not allowed to have transgender identification. However, people who identify as non-binary are somehow considered to be under the transgender umbrella. So there's no consistent definition of of what transgender is. So the idea that 0.7% of the population is transgender, I have no idea what that means, but 0.7% of people have not undergone transition. That, That would be hugely inflated. I'm going to let you go soon, but I do want to return to the subject which brought us into this conversation, which is the thread you wrote about what many people call dead naming. You talked specifically about how within the transgender community, as a matter of safety, uh, sometimes in conversations within that community, they will talk about people's prior identity before transitioning, where that information is necessary to apprise people of, of important facts about people, which may affect, for instance, whether they want to date them or whatnot. Are, are there two codes, one within the transgender community? So here's where we exchange real information, but for public consumption, we're more careful about dead naming because there's a taboo. Is, is it sort of like a... Uh, written and unwritten rules about how that information gets exchanged? To be honest, I don't know what it's like currently. I've been pushed to the outside, and I don't know if there's any network like that now. My observations from the process of getting pushed to the outside is that just as gay men do not want to be associated with pedophilia, understandably, trans women do not want to be associated with any sexual crimes. And so if a man commits a sexual crime and they have a trans identity and it doesn't seem like really clearly that that person is full-time, they usually get pushed outside and it's explained away as saying that person isn't trans. Um, However, if it's somebody who has transitioned and has a public persona as being a trans person, if that person commits a sexual crime, usually they're just not talked about anymore as though ignoring the harm that has happened to their victims, usually women and sometimes children, as though that didn't happen. So not talking about it is the way to make those things disappear currently. But among the core trans community, which I'm kind of an outsider to now, whether people do exchange that information related to that person's former or birth name, I honestly don't know. When you look back to the early 90s, and as restrictive as, as that was, are there parts of that that you miss in terms of, well, it sounds like there was a little bit more of a, of a unified spirit and, and maybe less, less politics. I do remember that there was a wider range of viewpoints tolerated on that channel at that time. There were people who had left-wing views, right-wing views. Sometimes political arguments would be kind of shut down so that the debaters could argue in private or, or on a different channel. But there wasn't this pressure to conform to a specific worldview. Were there people you met on that channel who who you remain friends with to this day? Well, one of them was one of those friends who I had in Indianapolis who had disowned me. <laughs> so if you'd asked me that a couple of years ago, I could say yes. But uh, there are a couple of other young transitioners who I was very tight friends with for a couple of years following our transition, who I still stay in contact with now every now and then. 
but for the most part, we've gone on to form our own lives. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, Karina. I really appreciate your candor. For sure. Can I say one last thing? Of course. Free Megan Murphy. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears. Thank you so much. I wish you all the best for the holiday season in Indianapolis. Thank you, and I appreciate your time. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content. 